Welcome to the Mindful Movement for Parkinson's podcast and audio library. Uh, Today I'm excited to have our first interview for the podcast. Um, Today I'll be interviewing Dr. Benzie Kluger, who is the director of the Movement Disorders Center at the University of Colorado Hospital. Hello, Dr. Kluger. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Okay, so um, I wanted to just start out by asking you... um, how you got involved in working with Parkinson's disease and other movement disorders, and um, you know what's your background in um, working with people with Parkinson's disease? Sure. Um, so my entree into movement disorders, like a lot of things in my life, was accidental, <laughs> and um, kind of uh, originally stemmed out of uh, after I went to the University of Florida for my fellowship. And while I was there, I started doing Kung Fu classes. And as part of Kung Fu, we were doing squatting exercises. And uh, about 10 seconds into it, I thought my legs were going to explode. And the teachers anticipated this and came over and said, "Um, you may feel like your legs are going to explode, but just keep doing it. And I kept doing it for another minute or something, and my legs didn't explode. And it got me really curious into uh, where fatigue was happening. And whether it was hap- how much was happening in my legs and how much was happening in my brain. And then from developing this interest in fatigue, I uh, began to notice it more in patients. And one of the uh, groups of people who are most affected by fatigue is Parkinson's disease. And so that was kind of the, my initiation into Parkinson's was from fatigue. And then from there, it's really kind of exploded into a whole bunch of... Um, different issues and interests that have come up, um, you know, a lot of which are are kind of an organic uh, development from just listening to my patients and trying to understand what are the things that most affect them, and also trying to understand things that I feel least comfortable or least able to help them with. Mm. Yeah, great, thanks. Um, So, since this podcast is going out on the internet, um, and who knows who might end up listening to it, I thought it might be good... Um, if we had a listener who got a recent diagnosis of Parkinson's, just to have a basic outline, like, what would be the most basic things that you would recommend to someone who's recently diagnosed in terms of uh, professional care and also self-care? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the diagnosis of Parkinson's um, for a lot of people is a really a traumatic event. And I, I think as a profession... Um, as neurologists, we oftentimes underestimate what that can mean to somebody. Um, and, you know, part of it is that we sometimes give people diagnoses that are in our minds are at least worse than that. Um, you know, part of it is, you know, I, I, we haven't had that firsthand experience. Um, so I think one of the things that's really important is to, to talk to other people about it, at least for a lot of people, and to try to find some sources of support. And sometimes support groups can be helpful. Uh, sometimes they can be kind of scary. It depends on what support group you go to. If people at the support group are mostly more severe or advanced than you are, sometimes it can actually be a negative experience. Um, one thing that I almost will always tell people when I give them the diagnosis is that there's a lot of variability in Parkinson's disease. And that, you know, usually I'll tell the story of a patient I, I'm seeing who's had Parkinson's for 30 years. And as long as he's taking his medicine, and he doesn't take that much, he's a rancher in southwest Colorado, he's very active, and he still wakes up at 5 a.m. every morning and does his thing. 
Um, and then there's, of course, people who have a more severe form of Parkinson's and, and have a more disability because of it. Um, you know, as far as things that people have control over, I think the number one most important thing is to stay active and exercise. And that's probably the single most important thing people can do to help slow down uh, the progression. And one thing which I don't have any data for, but my strong impression is that uh, mental attitude and having a gratitude practice, being connected, um, that those kinds of things really make a big difference. Um, so that's something that really ties into a lot of the work Matt is doing in terms of mindfulness and acceptance work and um, being present. Uh, medications are certainly you know, an important part of care and I think it's also really important to find a doctor or a, a team of professionals that you like working with, that you feel listened to. And everybody has a little bit of a different style. So, you know, there's, you know, doctors that I, you know, very much admire and respect. And, you know, sometimes I'll see somebody and refer them to them just because I think that personality-wise they're going to get more out of it than working with me and, and vice versa. Great. Thanks. I think that's a really good um, overview of a way to approach having received a diagnosis and starting to work with the disease. Um, it, it also occurred to me that someone might have had a diagnosis for five or eight or ten years and realized that they um, they want to start being more proactive than they have been. Mm -hmm. in, in that case, would you say um, looking at the exercise regimen is the best way to do that? Or how, how would you approach a patient who just says, I want to get more proactive than I have been about uh, handling sure. this disease? Um, yeah, so for people who want to be proactive, um, and, and, you know, this is certainly, you know, true in my experience, and there's some, you know, research studies to back it up, is, and again, the more active and independent people can be, the better. Um, so when it comes to physical activity, um, we kind of divide that up, you know, traditionally into three things. So there's aerobic activity, and that's basically exercise that gets your heart rate up, and, and we know that aerobic activity actually helps the brain make new neurons, what we call stem cells. Um, it causes the brain to release nerve growth factors and probably does help slow down the progression of the illness. Um, we think that working on balance and gait is really important and, and Feldenkrais would certainly kind of fall into that category, also mm -hmm. stretching. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really important that people maintain their posture since Parkinson's has a tendency to change people's posture. Uh, range of motion is really important uh, because if you're not mindful and proactive about it, there's a tendency for certain joints, for instance, the shoulders and hips to become more restricted. Um, and then strength training is uh, kind of emerging as a new area that really seems to be important, not just for function, but also for symptoms like fatigue, that if people are able to build up their muscular capacity, that they're able to do a lot more. Um, and then, you know, kind of tying on to that, um, I think social activity is really important. So there's this newer idea in research of something called social capital, which is basically how many social connections you have and what there's a tendency to have happen with Parkinson's or other illnesses is that your social capital shrinks. So all of a sudden you're not hanging out with people at work and now you're not part of the volleyball team. Mm -hmm. And what's been shown is that people with very restricted social networks, where it's just them and their caregiver, actually have the same risk of death as someone who had taken up smoking. Mm. Um, and so staying socially active is very important. And then the last thing is staying mentally active. And, mm -hmm. you know, my pointer for that is you know, people can do whatever activity they, they like doing, but, it's, you know, something that they really enjoy seems to be the most important thing. So if you 
you know, hate crossword puzzles, then that's probably not going <laughs> to help your mental outlook. Uh, you know, so playing Scrabble or have a patient who's learning how to play the ukulele or, mm-hmm. you know, a foreign language. You know, it's really just uh, using your mind and, and staying mentally engaged, mm-hmm. uh, doing something you enjoy. And, I, you know, I think part of it, that, you know, doing something you enjoy is, you know, having some laughter and that, you know, mm-hmm. certainly can't hurt. Yeah. Some of what you're saying... Um draws me back to the importance of maybe finding a support group that you really like because mm-hmm. it could provide some of that social capital and then also new ideas for simulating activities or ways to do things that are helpful with Parkinson's that are also fun, you yeah. know. Yeah. yeah, for a lot of people their their support group is kind of like a second family to them and, and mm-hmm. it, it can be a really... Um, not just a really safe place, but a you know really fun place, a you know place where they feel safe and understood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes it could take a little bit to find the right one. I've you know I've definitely heard of people complaining about support groups that they feel are more like bitch and complain sessions, and mm-hmm. they don't feel mm-hmm. like they're getting a lot of positive energy from it. Yeah. And so you yeah. know, like finding a doctor or a support group or exercise or whatever, it's really mm-hmm. kind of finding something that really fits for you and feels right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, uh, you are the director of the University of Colorado Hospital Movement Disorders Center. Um, what's the center? Is about four years old now, is that right? Um, four or five years old? Yeah, about four years old. Huh? Okay. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, you know, what's the mission of the center and um, what's it like for you to have a, a center dedicated for movement disorders in a hospital setting? Yeah, so the, the mission, and, and there's actually been... Um, at the University of Colorado, there's been a lot of work with movement disorders, uh, even going back to the 1960s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And part of the purpose of putting together a, a center was to try to bring all of the different activities that are happening across campus into a single place and mm-hmm. to help um, really to get people talking to each other. Yeah. Um, so we have uh, basic scientists, there are people who are pure clinicians, uh, music therapists, uh, researchers, um, and, you know, we try to get people together at least once a month just to learn what everyone's doing so that we can share ideas. Um, We actually have patients who are part of our advisory board in our center, and and we've had a lot of, um, you know, I think very productive uh, crosstalk by, you know, having the center. And our, our mission you know, is, is really to uh, improve the lives of people with movement disorders like Parkinson's in a number of ways. One of them is research, one of them is providing uh, clinical care, uh, one is education, and then the last one is community outreach, so doing talks mm-hmm. in the community, doing things for education, taking part in, for instance, I'm on the program committee for the Parkinson's Association of the Rockies, so mm-hmm. really trying to, um, you know, help the whole community in terms of, um, you know, trying to live a better life today with Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. Great, yeah. Um, yeah, and to follow up on that, I just wanted to ask you personally as a doctor, what's it like to have that mixture of clinical and uh, research work going on in a, on a weekly basis? Um, yeah, for, for me, I um, it's definitely my one of my big draws to being at university as opposed to being in private practice is having, you know, really this very amazing synergistic mix of um, teaching, um, you know, and and getting on a, you know, pretty regular daily basis, you know, just being infected by the excitement of, you know, students who are Mm -hmm. just getting started in this field and who remind me all the time what what a cool job I have. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And, you know, as far as clinic and research, it, it, at least for me, the two of them really feed off of each other quite a bit. Um, you know, a good example of that uh, recently has been uh, palliative care, which I think we we're going to talk about in a little bit more detail later. Mm -hmm. But palliative care is a branch of medicine that really started in the United Kingdom in the 1960s as a response to helping people with cancer and trying to help relieve the, their suffering and their, and their uh, caregivers' suffering. Um, and since that time, is it has expanded not just geographically, but it's expanded to start to involve other illnesses. Um, and we were one of the first programs in, in the world, actually, to take it on for Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. um, and my interest in that really came, you know, in large part out of listening to the patients I was taking care of every week and also listening to myself and just trying to understand where and how we were coming up short mm -hmm. um, and being bothered enough by it that I, you know, kept seeking out, you know, new ways of trying to, um, trying to, trying to deal with it not deal with it in terms of make myself shut up, but trying to deal with it in terms of, um, you know, how can I help people with these things that are, you know, clearly making us both uncomfortable and that are current system of taking care of Parkinson's really isn't helping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So to, to go further with that, I think a lot of people have probably heard the term palliative care, mm -hmm. but um, what what is palliative care and how is it different on the one hand from uh, maybe a more uh, traditional approach to Parkinson's or other kinds of care? And then on the other hand, from hospice, because I think right. in some people's mind, palliative and hospice, the distinction isn't totally clear. Yeah. Yeah, um, so actually I'll start with the second question because it's easier. Um, okay. So, so hospice is part of palliative care. Okay. So mm -hmm. hospice is the branch of palliative care that deals with end-of-life issues. Uh-huh. Um, but so what palliative care is, is it's an approach to taking care of patients and their families that are uh, affected by uh, chronic um, or, or life-threatening illnesses. And Parkinson's, you know, is certainly a chronic illness, and it certainly affects people's life in numerous ways. Um, and, and palliative care works by helping people with um, medical symptoms, so issues, for instance, like fatigue, like pain, like depression. It helps people with psychosocial issues, mm -hmm. um, so that would include things like uh, planning for the future, um, worrying about disability, um, grief, anger, sense of loss, things that are pretty normal reactions to a tough situation. And also mm -hmm. spiritual well-being. So mm. oftentimes people will have spiritual crises that are precipitated by an illness like Parkinson's. And sometimes, you know, people, and, and we've definitely found this quite a bit, that spiritual practice in a pretty broad sense is a real source of strength and meaning. And sometimes our chaplain um, in working with our team is really helpful in getting people to kind of reconnect with their, um, you know, kind of spiritual sources of strength. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of the myths about palliative care is um, is that palliative care, unlike hospice, is really appropriate at any point along the disease trajectory, including at the time of diagnosis, and maybe especially at the time of diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Because uh, what we're finding with talking to people and with our research is that at the time of diagnosis is really kind of a crisis point for a lot of people where a lot of fears come up about the future, a lot of uncertainty, a big need for education. Um, and a lot of people, 
you know, under the traditional medical care system, kind of feel like they get diagnosed and then they get abandoned, mm-hmm. and that it sometimes takes them up to, you know, one or two years before they really feel like they're kind of caught up to what just happened mm-hmm. to them. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, throughout, the, there, another myth about palliative care is that people have to choose either or. Either they have palliative care or they do aggressive care, and that's not true either. And so we've had people in our clinic who are also getting deep brain stimulation surgery. Mm-hmm. And our team is working with them to help them with social support. Maybe they live by themselves. They don't have any family around. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they have other symptoms that the DBS is not going to fix that we need to help them with. Uh, but there's no reason it's you know actually kind of unethical that people should have to choose between either aggressive care or palliative care. Mm-hmm. And the, the newer thinking about it is that the two really work best when they're done together and they're integrated. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, So you've mentioned your team a couple of times, Mm -hmm. and maybe uh, the listeners would want to know, what is the palliative care clinic and team that you've put together there at the hospital? Yeah, so our team, which has evolved over time, um, is currently there's, so myself, and I'm a neurologist, and I have an interest in palliative care. Uh Um, And so I have a little bit of a different approach than a typical neurologist where I spend a lot more time um, kind of trying to understand people's goals, uh, trying to understand people's fears, uh, trying to understand how people define quality of life, Mm -hmm. um, and trying to help them attain that. Um, We have a nurse who's on our team who uh, works with people a lot with, uh, particularly with getting services in their house, Um, works a lot with helping caregivers uh, to get extra support, to have breaks for them to take care of themselves. Uh, for taking care of something called advanced care planning, which is basically trying to set things in place so that if at any point in time that you reach a point where you can no longer make decisions for yourself, that we know who to ask and know what you would want. Uh, We have a chaplain who's on our team who helps people with spiritual well-being, but um, also ends up helping people with things that most people wouldn't traditionally think about with the chaplain. Um, So uh, grief, anger... Uh, loss, guilt, feeling like you're a burden, mm-hmm. all these things uh, end up, you know, that the chaplain, our chaplain, you know, tends to be very gifted and is really good at kind of honing in on, you know, what's going on with people and, and kind of helping explore that. Um, relationship issues come up a lot, uh, you know, that caregivers mm-hmm. um, no longer feel like a partner, they feel more like a nurse, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, you know, a lot of things that come up around that. Um, and then we have a social worker who um, also does some counseling, but is, you know, oftentimes helpful in getting people um, connected with uh, resources they need in the community, um, helping people with financial issues, um, getting people hooked into programs that they may need to do, helping people understand the laws around disability and long-term care insurance. And so, you know, that's kind of what we do in our clinic. And and our typical first-time clinic visit, you know, could be two or two and a half hours where Mm -hmm. everyone in our team is really just getting to know the patient and their caregiver and trying to trying to figure out where the sources of stress are and, and what we can do to help smooth things out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Yeah. Um, and so I guess a last question about uh, palliative care and Parkinson's disease. Um, this is, you know, relatively new um, for many people. Um, what, what would your hope be for the future in terms of seeing palliative care become an option or uh, expanding awareness of, mm-hmm. of it uh, within the Parkinson's community? Yeah, so um, I, th- I think there's a lot of, you know, things that are happening with uh, 
palliative care that are, are, are pretty positive. Um, one thing that we're starting to do is um, spending more time with educating residents and medical students about palliative care. Oh, yeah. And in particular, um, one way of looking at palliative care has been dividing it into what we've called primary palliative care and then secondary palliative care. And so primary palliative care are skills that we think are really essential for any physician to have. And these would include things like knowing how to uh, present bad news to people, uh, knowing how to talk to people about um, advanced care planning, um, being able to do some basic symptom management for things like pain. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's one big piece of, you know, certainly our mission as we're growing is to try to get palliative care um, more incorporated into medicine in general. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the clinic that we run is, is great, and I think it's, you know, important, particularly for very complicated cases, uh, but we're also trying to make a scaled-down version that would be applicable to people in community practice. Mm -hmm. um, and then I've actually spent a lot of time and have gotten a lot of invitations from patient groups to talk about palliative care, um, to talk about issues like death with dignity, um, and, and one of the things that I found, you know, you know, with palliative care is that when it's explained, um, most of the time, uh, you know, people living with Parkinson's disease and their caregivers are kind of relieved um, that we're having, you know, these open conversations about difficult topics because more often than not, these are things that people are thinking about and worrying about. Um, and actually, we know this from, from some of our studies, but feel like are topics that their doctor not only, you know, wouldn't, isn't going to talk about, but maybe it's not even interested in. And mm -hmm. I think we really have to kind of change that culture, both from a patient side, but also from a physician side, so that mm -hmm. doctors are comfortable talking about mm -hmm. it. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I almost feel like it's like both uh, the doctor or the, or the caregiver and the patient just need to give each other permission to mm -hmm. talk about things that are on both of their minds already, and then yeah. maybe have a little bit of training um, on the doctor or caregiver side to know how to do so skillfully, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah it's come up actually quite a bit, a um, number of times in clinic that uh, we've had patients and caregivers who requested to have some one-on-one -on -one time without mm -hmm. the other person present, and then and they bring up the exact same thing that they're protecting their mm. caregiver, the patient's protecting their caregiver from, and the caregiver's protecting the patient from, Yeah, and yeah. then we come back together and we talk about it, and, mm -hmm. and it's, I, I don't know, uh, for me, um, you know, this palliative care clinic and movement and training and talking to people about it, it's been probably one of the most rewarding things that I've ever, you know, I've certainly ever done as a doctor, mm -hmm. um, and just the, you know, the palpable sense of relief that, you know, we can feel in a room when mm -hmm. we are able to break through something with the family is really... <laughs> Uh, really pretty amazing. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, since this is a, this podcast is a mindful movement and I'm teaching mindful movement and mindfulness to people with Parkinson's, um, I wanted to ask you um, about mindfulness in terms of your own personal practice and how you might have seen it. Um, uh, people with Parkinson's use mindfulness as part of their self-care or just part of their life yeah um so mindfulness has kind of been, been an increasing part of my life um and in part it's it's been an increasing part of my life um 
because of my work with people with Parkinson's and dementia and other really difficult-to-treat illnesses. Mm -hmm. And unlike a lot of, not a lot, but unlike some branches of medicine where, um, say, infectious disease where you're able to, you know, cure somebody's tuberculosis or pneumonia, um, I've, I've never, nor has anyone else in the world, cured anyone's Parkinson's disease. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and certainly, you know, Alzheimer's disease and, and some of these other illnesses, Lou Gehrig's disease, um, you know, the prospects are, e are even worse. And so, so mindfulness has really been um, kind of my own practice into, um, I guess in one, one sense, opening myself up to being able to stay present with people who are suffering mm -hmm. and being able to be present with the reality of, of what they're dealing with and um, trying to, um, you know, help them through that and, and trying to be able to, um, you know, I guess connect to my own and to their own, uh, you know, kind of basic human kindness mm -hmm. in a skillful way to be able to, you know, help move people forward. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's kind of where a lot of my mindfulness practice has been focused. But um, for patients, um, one of the things I mentioned earlier, you know, one of my observations is that people who have a mindfulness-based practice, and that can range from anything from prayer um, to formal meditation to having a gratitude practice, um, that I've, you know, my impression is that those people are not just better able to cope with Parkinson's, but may actually do better over time with Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we are actually in the process, we've submitted a couple grants that didn't get funded, but in the process of trying to plan some grants and research studies to really um, prove it or, or really test it, mm -hmm. to test this idea. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I th my impression is, I mean, I think it's one of these things like diet and exercise that now seems very obvious that mm -hmm. your diet and exercise is going to affect your body and your heart. Um, but it actually was a kind of a revolutionary thing when the first studies came out in 1978 and 1980 mm -hmm. with, with mm -hmm. Dean Ornish. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's going to be a similar thing that, you know, 20 years from now that our kids are going to be like, you know, can you believe that people thought that, you know, what they thought and their mental attitudes would have no effect on their brain? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, to me it seems that obvious, but yeah. nonetheless yeah. it's not really a well-accepted or integrated thing in, uh, you know, certainly not in medical circles. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that'll be really interesting to see. As you know, I share a strong interest in seeing some of those studies happen. Um, I think if you've had a, a personal experience, as I've had and see people with Parkinson's have, that there can be a positive feedback loop between mindful attention, feeling better, having more space to do more mindful mm -hmm. attention, feeling better. Um, it, it can start to seem, um, yeah, just e easy and commonsensical that you'd want to kind of give yourself that gift of mm -hmm. mindful attention more of the time. Okay, so I just wanted to finish up with a, a little lighter question, just asking you, what's the most enjoyable part of your job? Yeah, um... There's a, actually quite quite a number of enjoyable parts. Um, you know, um, in, in, in the realm of teaching, um, you know, it's to me really fun and exciting when, uh, you know, just working with students and seeing, you know, kind of seeing the light bulb goes off when, when people really get it. And that can mm -hmm. be on, a, on the research side of things, um, can be in clinic, uh, can be with uh, patient care. Um, you know, so the teaching aspect of things is great. Um, on the clinical side, like I said, the, this palliative care clinic has 
um, on the one side, while it's been, you know, in, in some ways difficult, in other ways it's it's been a real source of um, satisfaction and in, in some kind of strange sense also joy, um, you know, that there have been things that have happened in that clinic that have been really, you know, pretty unexpected to me, um, you know, things that I would have never, you know, certainly never got taught in medical school to consider as victories, um, you know, for instance, helping helping somebody to, uh, to die at home with their family around and helping them to let go, you know, is mm -hmm. something that I, you know, never get taught in medical school. I mean, mm -hmm. you're supposed to prevent death, not um, help people through it. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, the sense of relief and, you know, being thanked by their families uh, has been, you know, really, really quite profound. Um, mm -hmm. And then on, on the research side, there is, you know, unexpected things come up all the time that are just... Um, you know, I, I said, like, I actually, I started the interview with uh, getting into Parkinson's disease was accidental, but it seems like all all of the best things that have happened to me and all of my best ideas are pretty pretty accidental. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's mm. kind of fun when, you know, oftentimes it's on my bike ride to work or something like that, that, you know, I, an idea pops into my head or I make a connection and, you know, all of a sudden I'm off and, you know, doing something that I never even knew about uh, last year. Yeah, great. So you can look forward to more happy accidents, hopefully. Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, expecting the unexpected. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks so much um, for the interview. Um, this was Dr. Benzie Kluger, who's the director of the Movement Disorders Center at the University of Colorado Hospital, and also um, the neurologist of the Palliative Care Clinic there. Um, if you want to look up more uh, or contact the center, um, I didn't write down the website. Do, do uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's www.ucdenvermovement.org. The letter is UC for University of Colorado Denver Movement.org. Okay, great. And uh, if you're listening to this on iTunes, uh, you can find my website at www.recovermobility.com. Okay, thank you, Dr. Kluger. All right, thank you.